David Hodges är er en amerikansk investor och grundlägger av investeringsbolaget Equanica. Han har investerat i Norge sedan 2006 och har tagit turen till Oslo för att fortälla politikerna vad han mener om grundränteskatten som är er föreslått för de norska laxuppträdarna. Idag har Paul Harper och jag fått besöka David i studio för att höra hur han värderar utsikterna för globala aktier. Vi ska också snacka om styrken i den amerikanska ekonomin, hurvitt vi är er i ett bear market eller starten på en längre uppgångsfase, och man har störst tro på investeringsmöjligheterna i den gamla eller nya ekonomin. Och vi kommer selvfølgelig heller ikke utenom Davids vurderinger rundt sjømatsektoren og i hvilken grad norske aktier er mer krevende å investere i enn før. Welcome to Utbytte, the DMB podcast where we explain the financial markets and the global economy. My name is Marius Brunhaugen, and today I'm joined by the American-based investor David Hodges. Uh, welcome, David. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm also joined by uh, my colleague and equity strategist here at the firm, Paul Harper. Uh, a pleasure as always, Paul. Yeah, good to be back again. So I thought, why don't you start, David, by telling us a little bit about your background from the financial markets? Yes. Uh, again, thank you for having me. Um, I started my professional career as an attorney in the United States. Uh, so I went to law school, I practiced law for five years, but I loved investing in the stock market uh, so much so that I actually went returned to school. So I went back uh, and got my MBA, which is a graduate level uh, degree in business. And I actually did a master's thesis on uh, the financial markets, in, in particular the equity markets, and what is the best way to outperform the equity market indices. So what's the best way to pick a stock? I left uh, my MBA program and took a job with a large investment firm in Dallas, Texas called Barrow, Hanley, Mowinney and Strauss. And I began my career there as an analyst, a stock analyst picking stocks. And so I focused on the banking industry. I covered Mattel, which is a toy maker. I covered Hewlett Packard. So I did tech, banks, consumer, a broad range of industries. And um, I actually uh, spent a fairly short amount of time, about a, maybe a little over a year, working as an assistant on a consumer fund that was specialized in consumer investments on a special assignment working as a, an assistant fund manager for Norges Pension Fund. So I had a little bit of connection with Norway early on in my career in that sense. Uh, my firm had always primarily been a US, US-based investor, but they desired to have more of an international focus. And so uh, I was asked to lead a team to design an international equity strategy. And so we spent two years designing a strategy, doing back testing, and I was asked to be the portfolio manager on that strategy. Hmm. So we started that from scratch, uh, literally with $5 million in seed funding. And over the next, uh, say, five to seven years, built that up to five fifty billion NOC in assets, so about $5 billion U.S. dollars. Um, and then I was asked to do the same thing in 2010 for a global fund that would roll up all the strategies at my firm. So uh, started again with uh, $5 million and eventually grew that to $5 billion or $50 billion NOC. That's impressive. Uh, um, thank you. So uh, at, uh, at the peak, I uh, was managing about $10 billion U.S. or $100 billion NOC. Uh, at the firm and left the firm in 2018 to start my own company, Equanica, and uh, I've been working at Equanica ever since. Is it better to uh, run your own company and investments? You know, there's uh, give and take. 
uh, honestly, uh, it's, it's nice to be able to do exactly the way you want to do it. So that's very nice, but I really do miss the colleagues at my old firm and, uh, you know, miss uh, working, being plugged into the industry in that sense. Uh, and there are a lot of things that you have to do with your own company that uh, other people can help with when you're at a part of a, a larger organization. So um, pluses and minuses for yeah, sure, yeah, but yeah. Uh, I'm a very happy person right now. There's no doubt about that. So in short, uh, how do you invest today? What kind of investor are you now? So today uh, I do have the luxury of, of doing it exactly the way I think it should be done um, as a professional buy side investor. And so um, there's some specifications about the way I invest today that really tell you a lot about what I think uh, a professional investor should uh, focus on. I should mention from my background that I was trained at the MBA level to um, follow the principles of Warren Buffett. So there are some similarities. I have a concentrated uh, fund strategy. So that typically means between 10 and 20 uh, investments in public equities. Um, I also cover private equity investments as well. Uh, but the vast majority of my investments, at least to date, have been on the public equity uh, side of things. And um, I have given myself the luxury of no longer having to cover certain sectors. Um, so now I just focus on consumer, industrials, financials, and some portions of technology, uh, the things that are more simple in the technology field. So um, I do have the ability to short, but um, I haven't really engaged in that yet. Uh, so things would have to be really dramatically overvalued for me to do that. And really on a broad basis, um, I have in the past attempted to short individual names. I sold some naked calls on GameStop yeah. during yeah. 2020, not in my fund, but just for fun. And uh, you can imagine what kind of a ride that was. Uh, over the next year and a half. So uh, it's definitely a good lesson in not being too focused with your short ideas. Um, but I'm very long-term uh, in nature in terms of my investments. I almost think of it as being a quasi-private equity investor. So I'm very selective in terms of the companies that I'll invest in. Uh, I only focus on business models that are very predictable uh, and uh, very forecastable in terms of, you know, your future predictions of uh, revenues, profits, and cash flows. Um, so I'm very selective about it. I typically only make a buy uh, purchase um, decision maybe one time a year. Um, so when I look at the universe, uh, most, most of the time, at least in my career, stocks are overvalued. Uh, there are very brief periods of time when I find very high quality businesses uh, in which you would want to be an investor where those are at compelling valuations. So I just sit patiently and wait. And when that does occur, hopefully I'm prepared and I can take advantage of the situation. Yeah. And now you are in uh, Norway to uh, discuss uh, the seafood sector and uh, to, to talk with uh, politicians about uh, the res proposed resource uh, tax. But I was wondering what, what, caught your interest for the seafood sector in the first place? When I launched uh, the uh, international fund at my old firm back in 2006, uh, a, a team of us had actually designed a quantitative screening model um, that was custom to our firm and our investing strategy. And at the time, uh, two of the companies that that quantitative model had suggested to us um, were uh, Cermac and Nutreco. So we actually ended up doing some due diligence on those two companies and purchasing those in our funds. So I was a shareholder in those two companies at the very beginning of my first fund and uh, was very impressed with the industry at the time. 
um, especially some of the things with relation to sustainability, uh, the amount of um, um, feed that is required to produce a kilo of uh, the end product and, you know, the meat versus other industries like pork and chicken and beef. Um, so there were a lot of things that just were inherently attractive about the salmon farming industry to me from a long-term perspective. Um, and so beyond that point, I ended up becoming one of the largest investors in marine harvest a couple of years, a few years later, um, in 2012, uh, when there were some, um, production issues or production came up quite a bit, uh, in Chile. Uh, you know, it was a difficult period for the Norwegian salmon farming industry, uh, 2011, 2012, I believe. And so I actually purchased uh, marine harvest shares in my fund, but uh, there were also many Norwegian listed uh, salmon farming companies that were too small for me to invest in as a fund manager. Um, names like uh, Leroy and Astevol and um, Samar. And so I bought those uh, for myself personally. Yeah. Uh, back in that period of time and uh, have held those ever since. So I've been a, a personal investor since 2011 or 12 and a professional investor since 2006. Yeah. And we'll uh, get back to the, the seafood sector and especially the, the resource tax and your opinion on that uh, later on. But it's a valid point, Paul, uh, that we, we maybe don't mention enough that uh, the seafood sector, it has been quite a ride if you look over the past uh, decade. Yeah, I mean, I think even if you go back uh, longer than that, I mean, it used to be a very cyclical sector and then has gradually become less cyclical and that sort of also helped to uh, boost the multiples that people are willing to pay on those, uh, those earnings. So it's been uh, quite an interesting journey, both in terms of building up the sector sort of from from basically nothing in the in the 80s but then also sort of seeing how the industry has matured and how the valuations and so on have changed over time as well yeah but before before we go into the details of uh, the resource tax and uh, so on uh, we have to discuss the u.s economy while we have you here david i mean <laughs> that's something paul and i discuss uh, close to every week uh, and of course uh, your your equity market more short-term view to so to speak but i thought we start with sort of the big picture i mean we have a backdrop where inflation is high interest rates are rising fast we have a war in europe we have china and u.s tension that are uh, seems to be escalating. Uh, and in addition, we have, uh, you know, teams such as uh, deglobalization, the energy shortage and the climate crisis. Uh, so, in, I mean, in your opinion, are we, are we at the beginning at, of a great shift? I do think we're at the beginning of a shift. To what extent it will be considered great, uh, it's hard for me to say. You know, over the last couple of decades, we've had two very large disinflationary forces in the world economy. Um, the first being China um, and essentially the outsourcing of labor to China and their, them, China being a source of inexpensive labor relative to uh, more developed domestic markets around the world, not just the U.S., but also Europe. So that's been a major factor. The other is technology. So two major disinflationary forces that, in my opinion, have, in addition to the demographic uh, impact. And I'm sure Paul probably has some thoughts on maybe even some other factors, but those have been two major factors in my career. The technology thing in terms of go forward, who knows, it's very in inherently impossible to predict what technology is going to do from my perspective. But yeah. from the Chinese labor perspective, if you look at the increase in labor prices in China um, over the last 10 years, uh, wage rates have actually been increasing at a very, very high rate. 
Um, and depending on how you measure it, uh, China has now almost nearly reached um, equality with the, the price of labor in Mexico. Um, and in addition, uh, we had had, from a political perspective globally, uh, a deglobalization. Uh, there was harmony uh, between China and Europe and the United States that allowed China to continue to serve as that disinflationary source. But what we've certainly seen in the United States uh, ever since uh, our former president took office was maybe a raising of an awareness of China in terms of the fairness of some of their domestic rules uh, dealing with American companies. And um, that's obviously accelerated with uh, their support implicit or tacit for Russia. So um, I do think if you look at the cost of labor in China today, along with the political issues that have been raised, that it's, I'm very skeptical that China can continue to be a disinflationary force uh, from a global perspective uh, as far as labor costs go. So to me, that's a change going forward. To what extent, uh, I'm not here to say that disinflation, those disinflationary forces broadly have ended, but I think if you take the Chinese labor portion out of the equation going forward, it will cause a change in, um, in global interest rates uh, yeah. moving forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, these kind of shifts and all, all things that shaping this, it's, it's, it's not happening just overnight, right? It's, uh, it's over a long period of time. So, but how does this affect your investment decisions? Well, it infects- if, if, if it does. It doesn't have a massive impact because my business model in terms of being an investor is, uh, as I told you, I now have the luxury of being very selective, not only in terms of the industries that in which I invest, but also particular companies within those industries in which I invest. So to simplify it, I probably have approximately 50 different companies around the world that I follow um, actively in terms of keeping an eye on the share price and where it stands. And I have a rough idea of where I would like to purchase those companies from a share price perspective. And so I just keep track of that. And when those businesses uh, or when the stock price of those particular companies drop to such a degree that I find the valuation compelling, uh, then I'll step in and buy those. And so I'm not really making macro forecasts um, because I'm, I'm selecting companies that have a pretty good growth outlook from a revenue and profit perspective. Uh, I don't want to say completely regardless of the macro perspective, but my investing style doesn't rely upon a, ma a macro forecast. And so I don't necessarily have to make those kinds of decisions, which is yeah. a little unusual in the asset management industry. Yeah. yeah. So Paul, how does uh, all this reason with, uh, with your take on, on the market, you know, long-term? Yeah, and no, I think, I mean, long-term, I certainly agree that uh, we've had this uh, sort of long period now where there's been deflationary forces, which have uh, helped uh, drag interest rates lower and lower. And that's been a sort of a, a, a tailwind for, for equities in, in particular and uh, tech stocks and so on uh, have also done very well out of, uh, out of that. And uh, I think it's interesting, as you say, that if, uh, if on, on the one level, you could say that just the deflationary forces disappearing, sort of going from deflation to neutral, that all else equal is uh, going to mean that the inflationary forces that we have uh, then get a slightly bigger weight. But, you know, maybe these deflationary forces actually become inflationary as well in the sense that, you know, Chinese costs, uh, you know, they start uh, increasing. And I think another factor that uh, you can also sort of take into that equation is that when uh, when China was uh, in a situation where it was uh, you know, selling a lot of cheap products uh, to the US, they were recycling a lot of those profits into US treasuries. And that was also helping to keep uh, rates low. So you had both the sort of the inflation 
inflation component of rates uh, being uh, held down by China, but also the real rates component uh, from them buying. And now we're seeing China gradually trying to exit the US uh, treasuries. So I think there's a lot of sort of long-term forces that are really saying that uh, the odds are interest rates are going to be trending higher over the longer term. You've also got big budget deficits in the US that structurally are probably only going to be increasing from here as well. So my guess is, uh, you know, 10 years from now, interest rates will be higher than where they are at the moment. You know, they may well come down from a cyclical perspective if we go into into a recession. But uh, longer term, I think the direction of rates uh, is up. And that means a lot of those type of sort of tech trades that have worked uh, worked very well will now have a much more tricky, uh, tricky outlook. And I think then, you know, if you're going to own tech stocks, that must be much more on sort of a, a stock picking basis rather than a sector basis. Yeah. So, David, what looks most interesting uh, to you? I mean, if you look at it in the short to medium term, is it investing in the old economy or the new economy? And and that's to some extent, you know, saying growth to value. You know, I would say it's uh, actually a little bit of both at this point in history, uh, which is a different answer for me, frankly, than I've been able to give over the last 10 years or so. Um, as Paul alluded to, uh there's been a really significant macro tailwind for growth in tech stocks over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, which has made it very difficult for value investors. But shocking, you know, I've, it's happened very rarely in my career where my idealist or stocks that I need to take a look at because the valuation looks interesting. It's been very rarely that tech stocks have been a major player on that list. That happened really for the first time in a long, long time for me late last year, mm-hmm. I would say in the October, September, October timeframe. And so um, I did make a, a purchase of some semiconductor capital equipment companies in my fund in October of last year. And uh, I really had a hard time remembering the last time that it was tech stocks that was the interesting area and not so much the old economy stocks. So. Um, I agree with Paul. It's maybe more of a stock pickers um, environment in growth and tech going forward. Uh, but that might also mean that uh, my idealist is a little more balanced between old economy and new economy going forward. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at uh, the year to date, we had a pretty decent start for for tech and other growth related uh, equities. Uh, and I guess one question is, are we are we still in a bear market or are we at the beginning of a longer uptrend? What's your take? Uh, It's probably not a very satisfying answer to say that, um, as I mentioned, uh, my uh, business school degree was based upon the philosophy of Warren Buffett, and he's pretty famous for saying that he has no idea what the market's going to do in the next six months, one year, or even three years, uh, maybe 10 years out, he can make a pretty good guess. And so my uh, point of view has always been if Warren Buffett doesn't think he can make that kind of prediction, I certainly can't. So it's very, very hard to say, but um, I will say that uh, as we stand here today, my perspective is there's a saying in the U.S., don't fight the Fed. Uh, So from a global perspective, maybe it's more appropriately stated as uh, don't fight uh, the global central bankers. And if uh, central bankers in the EU and the the United States are still interested in tightening liquidity, then uh, it's certainly a time to be cautious uh, from uh, an equities perspective as an investor. So uh, I certainly would not be surprised, given that um, the current state of play is to tighten liquidity, I would not be surprised to see the markets pull back here at some point. 
uh, I would be hesitant to call that we've already seen the bottom, uh, given that perspective. But when we do have a sense, and the markets will anticipate it before it actually happens, but when we do get a sense that uh, the central bank in EU and as well as in the U.S. are ready to loosen liquidity, uh, it's you definitely want to be in the equities market at that point. Yeah. Sounds like David is in your camp, Paul, at least on your side of the camp. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, is something that uh, at least if you sort of been following the markets for a, for a couple of decades, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of signposts that are sort of saying that uh, it is still too early to try and call the bottom uh, already at this point. I mean, there's you've always got to be open for the fact that uh, you know maybe it is different this time. So I mean, it's something that uh, you've always got to. Have, open that uh, that possibility that it could be the case. But uh, looking at sort of things like the yield curve and uh, other indicators like that, that would suggest that it's still too early to really try and time the lows. And I think uh, in the event that you do avoid a recession this year, it's probably more likely a case of that uh, you sort of push that uh, process a little bit further out because you, you really haven't, uh, you could sort of argue late 60s, you maybe had a situation where unemployment kind of stayed low for three or four years in one stretch, but then the 70s wasn't great, a great time to be an investor. So I think it's more a case of you avoid a, avoid a recession now than it's more a case of you just sort of pushed it out a year rather than you've avoided it completely. Yeah. And talking about uh, the economy, I mean, we have been surprised here in Norway how strong the economy seems to be uh, holding up, or at least things are knowing not going as bad as fast as one might could think uh, at least six months ago or something like that. And I think the situation seems to be s- the same in the U.S., uh, I mean, six months ago, Paul, we were discussing a hard landing. Uh, then it was uh, the soft landing, and now it's may- maybe it's no landing at all. Uh, I mean, give us uh, give us your take on how the U.S. economy is going, David. Typically, when the Federal Reserve is tightening liquidity, um, they are standing alone in terms of a major factor with regard to the economy in the United States. What's unusual about this particular situation is the U.S. Congress recently passed a major fiscal stimulus called, they they titled the the legislation the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA for short. And so there's quite a bit of uh, federal spending that is to come in terms of infrastructure build out. So that is uh, having a counter counter effect versus what the Fed is doing with tightening of liquidity. So if you take into account that factor, as well as the the well-recognized or established historical precedent, that it takes some amount of time for the Fed's tightening of liquidity to actually surface in the real economy. You know, sometimes people forget that uh, it doesn't happen right away. The financial markets are aware of it immediately. So everyone who's a participant in the financial markets thinks, okay, the Fed's tightening, like we need to go into a recession very quickly. But in practice, it actually, there's a lag effect. It's well-recognized. Federal Reserve officials are very well aware of the fact that there is a lag effect. And what we're seeing in the U.S. economy right now to me is evidence that yes, there is indeed a a lag effect between the tightening of liquidity uh, and the impact in the real economy. Um, And so that combined with the fact that we do have some fiscal stimulus that's ongoing is causing it to push out a little bit as Paul described, in my opinion. And it's, uh, I mean, it's interesting, Paul. I mean, we only have to go back to last week where we got some new data points on the uh, inflation. I think it was the PCA inflation from the US and it seems to be strong. 
Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems to be a bit more sticky than I think a lot of people have been hoping. And uh, we've sort of seen the result of that in the um, Fed funds futures. In the last three weeks, expectations for Fed funds at the end of this year have moved up uh, yeah, almost 90 basis points in the space of three weeks. I mean, that's a big move uh, for that type of market where we were expecting, you know, a month ago that uh, there was going to be maybe one more rate hike and then you start getting rate cuts towards the end of the year. But uh, certainly, you know, the data that we've had during the course of the last three or four weeks have forced the market to change that uh, that assumption. So to sum up and uh, conclude, uh, David, um, what's the take for the equity markets uh, over the, the next uh, coming years? My view would be uh, that uh, given that we're in a regime where liquidity is being tightened in the U.S. and the EU, Uh, I think investors should sharpen their pencils, um, identify which businesses they would like to become uh, an investor in, and uh, and be patient and be ready because uh, it's more likely than not that they will probably have an opportunity to make a large investment in some very good businesses over the next year or two, and uh, they should have their homework done in advance and be ready to pounce. Yeah. Okay, so let's uh, go uh, over to talk about seafood tax and uh, investing in Norway. And uh, as most of you listeners know uh, very well, our politicians proposed resource tax on the seafood sector late September of uh, 2022. This came as a shock to the industry and investors, and it sent uh, Norwegian seafood stocks sharply down. Now, the details of the resource tax plan are yet to be finalized, but regarding the resource tax and how it was uh, introduced, David, have you witnessed anything like this in your uh, investment career in in any part of the world? I have, I have, but it's very rare, I should say. More often occurs in emerging markets than in developed economies like in Norway, which I think adds to the shock for a global investor to see... Uh, what's happening potentially here. Um, I'm not assuming that it's going to be uh, finalized. I'm hoping that this form will not um, actually be passed. Uh, But I can't say that my fact-finding mission here in Norway has been encouraging with regard to that. I hear rumors that the legislation has already been written, uh, even though it was uh, proposed not too long ago. And uh, it doesn't seem to be conforming with historical precedent here in Norway with how this kind of legislation typically would be um, proposed and passed. So there doesn't seem to have been really a a full period of consultation and discussion. So um, I am a little, I'm very shocked at uh, the way, not only the substance of the legislation, but also the manner in which uh, it's uh, apparently going through the storting. Yeah. Uh, but I have seen it uh, on a few occasions uh, in my experience as an investor. Silvio Berlusconi's government uh, pushed through something uh, with re- regard to the reduction of tariffs uh, that could be assessed uh, by the electric utilities in Italy in 2011. Um, also, in 2011, um, in Germany, uh, in the wake of the uh, tragic Fukushima nuclear accident in Japan, German politicians decided to outlaw the use of nuclear power. And um, we saw a very dramatic change in the political regime there as far as uh, how the utilities would be allowed to utilize nuclear power. And that had a very uh, severe impact on the, the price of capital for uh, German utilities. And that was in 2011 as well. 
Uh, and then more recently in China in 2000, I believe it was 2021, the Chinese uh, Communist Party decided that for-profit education models would no longer be allowed and all the, all the education companies would be required to change to nonprofit status. So uh, to give you an example there, there's a company called New Oriental Education and the share price went from 150 to 11. Uh, at its bottom. So quite a dramatic uh, result there as well. So those are the three that I can recall, but I have spoken to other global investors that I stay in touch with and asked, have you ever seen anything like this yeah, in your yeah. career? And, and many people struggle to see something like this happen in a developed market. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we have spoken about that many times, Paul, but uh, it really hit the market. Yeah, I think yeah, it certainly is something that, uh, uh, aside from some sort of rumours a uh, day or two uh, in advance, there was uh, really no particularly strong hints that this was uh, uh, likely to uh, to emerge. And as you say, it's something that uh, you would sort of expect this uh, type of thing to happen in maybe emerging markets where, you know, suddenly the, the goalposts get shifted at, uh, at short notice. But in in developed markets, it's something that uh, that's a very rare occurrence. Yeah. Are you invested in Norwegian salmon farmers today, uh, David? I am. Yes, I am. Uh, but uh, just from a personal perspective. So uh, I uh, do not have any investments in my fund, my investment fund in uh, the Norwegian salmon industry currently. Uh, but I have been, uh, and I mentioned, I wrote an op-ed for Aftenposten a couple of months ago, and I mentioned that at the outset of my article. I do have personal investments in Norway, and I have since 2000, uh, either 2011 or 2012. Yeah. Were you tempted to push the sell button immediately when you heard the news of uh, late September? Uh, I, uh, Of course, you have to think about that kind of thing, and part of the reason I'm here is, is to do due diligence on um, not only the industry, but uh, and not only the, the political situation here, but also to try to make an assessment is what's happening here with the government coalition a mistake by some politicians, or does this reflect the underlying will of the Norwegian people? Uh, because the answer to that question makes a big difference in terms of uh, my appetite for continuing to be invested in Norway and certainly uh, in, in investments going forward. I'll give you an example. Just while I've been here, I was approached with a private equity opportunity, not in the salmon farming industry, but a completely different industry. And uh, I certainly am open to considering it, but I had to be honest with the with the person that uh, if this legislation goes forward and passes, I just I cannot invest in Norway uh, in the future. And what are the what are the signals you have uh, gotten so far? What I've been told so far is that, uh, and this is what I would assume, and frankly, this is the kind of thing that I would expect uh, in many other countries in the world. I think uh, what I've been told is that this particular legislation was at least originally an attempt to make the budget. <clears throat> if you look at uh, the detail that was included in the very initial proposal, uh, it was very lacking in terms of the detail that you would normally see on some legislation. So it, it seemed to suggest that the governing coalition was attempting to make the budget and they saw an opportunity perhaps to do this. And it's convenient because, you know, some of this, the families that are involved in the industry have done very well over the last decade. And so it's somewhat of an easy target uh, for the governing coalition to perhaps go after this particular industry to make up the budget shortfall. And I think it also uh, unfortunately reflects maybe a lack of some 
understanding of financial markets uh, and what the ramifications of pushing something like this through, the ramifications for the broader Norwegian economy. Because as I mentioned in my op-ed in Oftenposten, uh, this won't just impact the aquaculture industry. This is going to raise the price of capital for all of Norway, every, every industry in Norway, but especially any industry that, that directly faces the government, like banking, insurance, um, utilities, uh, telecom, that kind of thing. So there's going to be a price to be paid, but it's a subtle price that's somewhat hidden initially and plays out over an extended period of time. So even some financial market players don't really understand it when it first happens. And certainly if you're a politician without a, without a, a business or financial background, you, you wouldn't really understand that. That's why I came here yeah, and yeah. spoke at the Storting was to try to explain um, I'm certainly in favor of Norway running the economy and the tax regime, uh, however they would like. I would certainly never uh, go to another country and try to tell another country how they should run their tax policy. But I do think it's important that the politicians and the people of Norway understand the long-term finan financial ramifications that may not be evident at first blush. Yeah. And I guess that's also, I mean, why the politicians should uh, listen to uh, an American investor. <laughs> well, uh, I'm just attempting, uh, maybe it would be easier if I weren't an American investor. Americans uh, have a little bit of a history of going around the world telling people how they should do things. So uh, maybe it would have been easier if I came from uh, some other country. Uh, so I understand I'm a little bit handicapped in that from that perspective, but um, I do think it's important uh, for the Norwegian politicians and the Norwegian people to hear the perspective of a global investor. Because yeah. when I talk to people in Norway, they say, it's good that you're coming to do this because in Norway, there's typically a back and forth amongst the different political parties. And so the opinion of someone who's from Norway is often discounted because of uh, that history. Whereas if you're an independent global investor, um, perhaps it gives a little more credibility to the point of view. And, and I should point out, uh, while I have investments in the salmon farming industry, they're fairly small for me. So yeah. uh, this isn't a matter of life and death for me, certainly. Um, so I don't feel that I'm biased in that regard, but I've had a long connection with Norway, not only as a, an investor in companies like Statoil and Orkla uh, and those kinds of companies, but um, on a personal side, I have many friends here and the, the area of the United States where I was born and raised is very similar to Norway, very similar focus on the outdoors. The state from which I come from in the United States is farming based. Yep. Uh, very good people, good hearted people, straightforward. And so I have a lot of friends here and have always felt a connection with Norway. And that's the reason I'm here. I mean, it would be very easy. And I know most global investors simply sold their shares and just crossed Norway off their list and just moved on to the next, you know, because there are plenty of countries around the world in which yeah. one can invest. But uh, because of my connections, I felt it was important to come here. Yeah. And we're, of course, happy to have you here. And it's great to hear your uh, your thoughts. Uh, I read, Paul, that uh, according to the Norwegian Seafood Federation, updated numbers show uh, invest investments totaling 40 billion nook in the seafood sector has been put on hold now or cancelled or scaled back due to the proposed uh, resource tax. It's yeah. quite a high number now. 
It is indeed. And I think this is, uh, again, something where I, I suspect the government kind of thought that this was a case of the industry sort of you know, saying they would do this if the tax was uh, was increased and sort of assuming that they were just going to, you know, kind of call their bluff essentially. And I think uh, now we've seen that, the, you know, there is real consequences and this does have an impact uh, on jobs. And I think uh, another factor as well, which has maybe been undercommunicated to, to some extent, is that uh, for Norway to do something like this where you sort of move the goalposts uh, and essentially say, oh, you know, they're big enough, they can afford it. That's not a great strategy. If you're a big owner of capital, as the Norwegian oil fund is, you know, is that, uh, do you want to really sort of start uh, making, a, you know, indications that it's okay to sort of uh, move the goalposts and say, oh, well, they know it's, it's international capital. It doesn't really matter. They can afford it. I mean, that that is the Norwegian oil fund. So, uh, you know, who's going to be the next victim down the line somewhere? You know, that's the sort of thing that if you start changing the global norms about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, then, uh, you know, Norway would potentially pay a big price uh, through the oil fund as well at some point. Well, and if I can jump in there, not only, um, I don't think it's just limited to those kinds of examples, but uh, say, for example, if I, next month, if I'm approached by uh, a company in Norway that wants to build out an electric vehicle battery business, and here in Norway, uh, and they're ra- doing a private equity raise. Why would I, as a global investor, invest money in in an EV battery facility in Norway when I? It's been made very clear now that the Norwegian government, without much due process, may just come in and raise the tax rate on uh, any particular industry. It just makes it a dangerous place to invest, not just in aquaculture but in any industry. And if that's the case, that means uh, if those kinds of companies can't raise money or if they can raise money, they they have to pay a higher price for the money that they raise. That means they can hire fewer people if they're having to pay that higher price for the capital, uh, or maybe they grow at a slower rate in the future. So uh, it tran- to the average Norwegian, it translates into fewer jobs that otherwise would have occurred here that now are not going to be here. So um, not necessarily shutting down of a factory, but a factory that doesn't get built, for example, or if it is built, uh, a smaller factory is built. And so instead of adding 10, 20 jobs, you just add 10 jobs. Uh, And the growth rate in the future uh, is slower because of the higher tax rate. And so wage growth for the average employee in Norway, not just in aquaculture, but in other industries, uh, wages go up at a slower rate in the future. So there's a real impact in terms of jobs and wages for every Norwegian citizen. And and those are the kind of things that I wanted to try to give a perspective on that may not be evident to a politician in the Storting who isn't necessarily trained in business or finance. Yeah. And I know, you know, you're still sort of deciding, but uh, how investable would you say Norway is now from from an international investor's point of view? Well, there are really two perspectives on it um, that any professional investor would take. Uh, The first perspective, which is probably, you know, a, a, a majority of the cases would be to raise the price of capital. So still consider investing in Norway, but raise the cost. So in fact, I spoke to one global investor who told me that they would still consider Norway, but not any industries that directly face the government. So they would not invest in the banking industry or the utility industry in Norway. Uh, But where they do make investments, uh, if they used to pay 15 times profit, now maybe they would invest at 12 times profit. So the cost of capital for any sector in, in Norway 
has gone up for those types of investors. And I would say there's a fair share of investors who will still consider Norway, but they'll just raise the price of capital, which ultimately will slow growth rates uh, for the economy and wages um, and job growth here. Uh, and then there's a second category of investors who will simply just cross Norway off and say, okay, let's just not consider Norway because of this risk. Uh, sadly, that's the category I would be in because I have the ability to you know, pick and choose which countries I invest in. So uh, if the legislation goes through, many investors just will no longer consider Norway. And I've spoken to investors who specifically told me, I had one global investor tell me that uh, if something like this happens and I invest in Norway after that, and something bad happens again, whether it's in aquaculture or another sector, uh, that's a fireable offense for that fund manager. So the client would very, very likely fire them and call them an idiot for investing in Norway. Uh, so he was very uh, blunt about that. And I hate to say it, but he compared it to Venezuela. I personally think that that's over the top. I would certainly would not compare Norway to Venezuela, but um, I have spoken to someone uh, who's a direct source who told me that one of the top in asset managers in the world and most of your listeners would probably have heard the name, uh, has now changed their risk rating on Norway and is now equivalent with Romania. So nothing against Romania, but that is a frontier market. Uh, and uh, if you're a developed economy like Norway, you certainly don't want to be placed in that level of risk category. And Paul, uh, I mean, we still don't know how this uh, ends with the resource tax and all, but uh, as we have, uh, David has been saying, I mean, there, there there will be ripple effects somehow on both the financial markets and the, the economy. Yeah, I mean, once once you've sort of uh, broken that taboo, as you could say, of, uh, of essentially changing, changing the rules and uh, changing the rules with a sort of a backdated effect uh, as well then uh, then you know suddenly you know that that uncertainty takes a long time to clear and i remember from my time in uh, in london in the 90s uh, you know that norway was in that sort of situation where if you invested in something there and it went wrong then uh, that was uh, essentially a sackable offence because norway was at that point viewed as being uh, a sort of a bit of a cowboy market from uh, from uh, you know an international perspective and so you know that's something which uh, you know over the course of uh, you know the the late 90s, and the the period after that, you know, gradually managed to uh, get uh, back onto uh, into everyone's sort of good books, you could say, with a lot of uh, you know good performance from from companies. But it you know it takes a long time to build up a good reputation and a short time to to destroy it. Yeah. All right, that uh, sums it up for uh, today. I hope we can have you uh, back, David, in, uh, let's say, one year time. And by then, the equity markets will have started to move uh, up and uh, the seafood sector has uh, found a solution with uh, with the government and uh, everybody's happy. We'll see, we'll see. But uh, thank you so much again for uh, joining us today, uh, David. Thank you also uh, to you, Paul. And uh, finally, thank you everyone for listening. Denne sendingen blev publicerad i podcasten Utbytte. Innehållet i sändningen är er anses som marknadsföringsmaterialet från DNB och är er ment att vara generell sparvägledning. Sändningen ska inte uppfattas som ett tillbud om att köpa eller sälja finansiella instrumenter eller som investeringsrådgivning tillpassat den enskilda investors situation. En investor som har behov för råd eller speciell information som ges bör kontakta en finansrådgivare. DNB påtar sig inte ansvar varken för direkt eller indirekta tap som följer av innehållet i sändningen läggs till grund för eventuella investeringsbeslutningar. Husk att historisk avkastning aldrig är er någon garanti för framtida avkastning. Avkastningen kan bli negativ som følger kurstapp.
Bruk av prognoser for å beregne fremtidig avkastning er heller ingen garanti for fremtidig avkastning. Innholdet i sendingen bygger på information fra offentlig tilgjengelige kilder som DNB ser på som pålitelige, men som ikke er uavhengig verifisert. Følgelig gir DNB ingen garanti i forhold til nyaktighet og fullstendighet. Alle uttalelser her reflekterer DNBs, den enkelte ansatte, eller andre tredjeparts vurderinger på tidspunktet for den aktuelle sendingen, og kan etter det endres uten nærmere beskjed. Ytterligere informasjon om blant annet kildebruk og interessekonflikter er tilgjengelig på dnb.no. Skråstrekk i mest, vinstrekt disclaimer.